Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. Our guest during the first segment of today's program is David Donahue, Ireland's ambassador to the United Nations. Ambassador Donahue will be speaking about the UN in a world of crisis at Elizabethtown College on October 17th. We plan on getting into some of those issues today, but the ambassador's experience and background is so broad that there are many topics to address. Ambassador Donahue served a diplomatic posting to the Holy See during the short reign of Pope John the uh, 23rd and the election of John Paul II. He was instrumental in brokering the peace agreements ending hostilities between Northern Ireland and Great Britain and represented Ireland to the Russian Federation during Vladimir Putin's rise to power. Ambassador David Donahue, welcome to the program. I'm delighted to be on the program, Scott. Thank you very much for having me. All right. I want to start with the kind of your uh, topic for your appearance on the campus of Elizabethtown College on October 17th, the U.N. in a world of crisis. This is a broad question, but what is the U.N.'s role at a time like today, crisis we're seeing across the world? Well, um, I think it's recognised that uh, uh, more and more um, uh, the, the, the challenges which the world faces have to be resolved uh, at the global level. That there are very, very few uh, issues which come up uh, uh, which um, would not benefit from from a global approach. Um, and this is where the UN comes in. Let me give you an example. Uh, one of the great challenges uh, the world has faced over the last year or two has been the migration refugee crisis. Well, for the first time ever, the UN held a summit uh, about two weeks ago, which produced a detailed set of policy uh, agreements for how to address that crisis. Uh, that's an example of something which um, uh, enables the UN to, to deliver uh, to best effect. Now, of course, it's an imperfect organization, um, and we see frequently uh, a stalemate on the Security Council in relation to a number of issues. But uh, overall, if the UN didn't exist, we'd probably have to invent it. We need some global organization which will help us to uh, find solutions for what are increasingly global challenges. Just out of curiosity, because we haven't heard a whole lot about it here in the United States, is Ireland taking refugees? Um, Ireland is uh, taking refugees. Um, what has happened is that we we have a a, a, a number a, a quota in effect which we have uh, uh, laid out, but the quota hasn't been met yet because um, uh, an insufficient number of Syrian refugees have actually come to Ireland. But we are we are ready and willing to take them uh, when they come. Geographically, of course, we 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 are a little bit off the beaten track. And perhaps economically, we're not um, quite as attractive as, as, say, Germany. But uh, we are ready to to take. Uh, it's, a, it's a figure around 4,000 uh, refugees um, uh, on, on on present planning. You know, uh, Ambassador, throughout history, uh, there have been eras when the world was in chaos. I mean, in just the last hundred years, we fought uh, two world wars. Great Britain and France basically fought a world war in the 18th century. Uh, there's been slavery. Uh, conquering of, of, of different nations, people being wiped out, the Holocaust. So what the world faces today, how does it rank up there? And I'm not looking for a numeric rank, but how does it compare to uh, some of the crises that we face throughout history? 
Well, if one looks at the Syria uh, uh, tragedy, then frankly, um, it is one of the most depressing uh, uh, situations uh, we've had to face in modern times. And uh, it is difficult to compare one era with another. But you, the, the, the number of crises, of regional crises, is uh, increasing worldwide. Uh, there is no doubt. Uh, and uh, perhaps a, a more worrying t- trend is that uh, uh, when a particular crisis situation, be it say Somalia or Iraq or Afghanistan, when it appears on the horizon first, it doesn't go away. Uh, We we used to hope um, that uh, there would be solutions found in the short to medium term for for these situations, but in fact, they tend to stay with us as longer term crises. So the number of um, uh, challenges in that respect is is certainly increasing, and uh, uh, overall, um, uh, there's not a lot of comfort <laughs> to be had from the from uh, uh, what we see at present. Do you feel that, and do your colleagues feel that at the United Nations? Uh, they do indeed, and uh, the agenda of the Security Council, which is charged with maintaining international peace and security, uh, is, is extremely full at present. Obviously, some issues. Dominate, dominate their work and dominate the, 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 the news and, and, and Syria is probably top of the list but there are plenty of others, there's Ukraine uh, um, uh, Somalia, Mali a number of situations in, in Africa in fact it's fair to say that the um, uh, that Africa overall um, is responsible for a, an increasing proportion of the Security Council's work so yes, the, the colleagues at the UN are, are highly aware of the enormous agenda they have. And as I say, um, the institutions of the UN uh, don't manage to find solutions uh, every time or, or, or let's say, at, at, at the first attempt. But uh, overall, um, nobody disputes the idea that we have to have something like the UN. Is there anything that, you know, when you just list the, those those uh, different hotspots around the, the world, is there anything that keeps you up at night? I mean, it, it, it almost makes it seem like it would be hard to sleep if you worried about well, it overall. <laughs> Okay, let me introduce another dimension. I mean, one aspect of the UN's work is um, the, the maintenance of international peace and security. But there's a lot more which it does, uh, um, notably through the General Assembly. And uh, let me give a, a one concrete example. Um, last year, uh, the UN, and that's to say the 193 member states of the UN, in other words, the entire world, adopted a new agenda for development of all countries. Uh, and this agenda is called the... Uh, 2030 agenda or the sustainable development goals. This is a set of goals which every government in the world has agreed on, uh, which cover everything conceivable, health, energy, environment, human rights, gender equality, food security, and so on. This agenda was was devised by the UN in uh, negotiations among all of the countries, which, as it happens, I co-chaired along with my Kenyan colleague. And this is being being regarded as the single greatest achievement of the UN uh, in recent years. A second big agreement last year was one on climate change, also reached under uh, UN auspices. And then this year, if I may say, the the, the Migration and Refugee Summit, which as it happens I also co-chaired, but with Jordan, uh, it has also been seen as the big achievement this year. So these are uh, positive gains where the world does manage to to reach global agreements on things which are important 
important literally to humanity and to, to the planet. Um, so, you know, a number of achievements like that do help to restore the, the, the potential of the UN to, to, to make a difference. You know, and, and I, I knew you were going to go down that path, and I'm glad you did because uh, that is one of the things that uh, we have a tendency, whether it's our media or leaders here in the United States, uh, that we, we focus on uh, the Security Council and what is not working or what hasn't been done, the solutions that haven't been reached, and what doesn't get as much attention are just some of the things that, that you mentioned. Yeah. And uh, I think what was important was that uh, in, in the case of those two examples I gave, um, all 193 member states, so from the biggest countries in the world to the tiniest, all were involved in negotiating this agreement. I mean, clearly, the Security Council only has 15 members. So <clears throat> by definition, that's a kind of elite uh, which uh, plays a, a key role in terms of maintaining peace and security. But the UN is, of course, all of the member states. And um, it was uh, it was essential to have buy-in from all member states to the kind of global agreements that I just described. Um, they were difficult to to reach, but you know, with enough goodwill and enough persistence uh, and enough creative um, flexibility in terms of drafting, uh, we, we were able to get there eventually. Um, I might add in also a, a major uh, summit which took place in Istanbul a few months ago on humanitarian issues. That was, again, a, a big UN achievement. So um, they're not easy, but they, they do demonstrate the value of the UN to those who might be skeptical from time to time. I want to talk about uh, some of the perceptions of the UN here in America, but I want to ask you about uh, Ireland and Europe as well. Uh, this is a quote from Donald Trump, the Republican uh, uh, nominee for president, says the United Nations is not a friend of democracy. It's not a friend to freedom. It's not a friend even to the United States of America, whereas we all know it has its home and it surely isn't a friend to Israel. Now, there are people other than Donald Trump who have that opinion here in the United States that the United States doesn't get as much out of its membership to the U.N. as what we should, that uh, the U.N., as Trump said, is not a friend to the United States. Mike, as a, an observer from another nation, how do you see that? And then I'm, I'm also curious about what the view of the UN is in Ireland, in Great Britain, and in Europe. Well, um, I mean, I think the, the U.S. Uh, uh, has as much of an interest as everyone else um, uh, in, in the maintenance of international peace and security, and, and certainly it makes a major contribution uh, to, to that through its um, <clears throat> very active role on the Security Council. So I, I, I think that um, uh, the U.N. Uh, <clears throat> as an institution is of enormous value to the United States as it is to, to many others, and the United States also plays a extremely constructive role in all of the negotiations uh, in the General Assembly, uh, which, which I mentioned. Um, the, I know there has been a debate in this country over the years about the, um, the gains uh, which it might have, and indeed um, um, similar debates take place in, in other countries. But from my perspective as an observer, um, I, I feel that 
um, uh, whatever the occasional frustrations or disappointments there might be, overall there were huge gains um, uh, for the US in being a key member of an organization like this. And I can see it myself on a day-to-day basis. There's a very active involvement by the, the US mission or the, the US delegation across the board. And I can see them really uh, putting uh, their stamp on, on world affairs through the UN. So that would be my view on that. Uh, in, in Ireland, the UN has always had a very, very positive reputation. But this goes back to a number of things, including our uh, involvement in UN peacekeeping over many years, um, uh, but also a sense that we are a small country uh, which wants to make a contribution to, to world affairs. And through such issues as um, uh, peacekeeping or human rights or development uh, policy, we're able to make that contribution at the UN level. So the Irish people have always been solidly supportive of our involvement at the UN. And indeed, that involvement has been the centerpiece of Irish foreign policy um, uh, since the late 50s. As regards Britain, I I can't really comment on that. But my sense is that it's the same in Britain, that the the British people also recognise the enormous value um, of of active British participation in the UN, whether in the Security Council or in the General Assembly. Um, And certainly we work very closely here with our UK colleagues. And I also have a sense, if I may say so, that in the the post-Brexit situation, that uh, the UK is determined to continue to play a very active role at the UN. Um, In other words, that role is not affected by any uncertainties um, to which the uh, Brexit vote may have given rise uh, closer to home. In Europe, more generally, I think um, uh, all EU member states are are supportive of the UN. There is an increasing emphasis on closer cooperation between the European Union and the UN. I mean, the European Union is a major regional organization. Uh, You also have, for example, the African Union. And a theme nowadays at the UN is that um, uh, the best results can be achieved through cooperation between the various regional organizations, uh, um, if you like, among each other and with the UN. Um, and uh, that, that the, the scale of the challenges regionally is such that you need to uh, uh, place greater weight on the, on the shoulders of regional organizations such as the EU. So in, in a word, positive attitudes in, in Europe as well. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Our guest uh, that we're honored to have on uh, this portion of today's program is Ireland's ambassador to the United Nations, David Donoghue. And Ambassador Donoghue has uh, a a broad background. We're going to get into some of the other things that he's been involved with, uh, some of the most significant events in the last 30 years. We'll get into those in just a few minutes. But you mentioned Brexit. Uh, You know, the United Kingdom voting to leave the European Union surprised a lot of people in this country and I think around the world. So in the in the couple months since then, what have you seen, you know, in preparation for leaving the EU and what kind of what kind of uh, impact will it have in uh, United Kingdom, UK countries? 
Well, we're all coming to terms with it. Uh, I mean, uh, Ireland is obviously disappointed at the result because we would very much have liked the, the UK to remain in the European Union, but we respect the, the wishes of the of the, the UK citizens. Um, uh, there is now some clarity, at least on the timetable. Uh, Prime Minister May uh, indicated the other day that uh, uh, that the relevant part, the relevant uh, agree, uh, Article 50 of the Lisbon Treaty will be invoked before the end of March. So we at least know the kind of timescale <clears throat> within which um, the British government is operating. I should say that um, we in Ireland <laughs> will probably be more affected by the decision than than most, indeed, uh, than, than perhaps than any other um, EU member state for, for a number of reasons. Um, one is that... Uh, we, of course, share a land border with the UK because of the border between Northern Ireland and, and the South. And we also have um, joint involvement in the Northern Ireland peace process. So that's a particular challenge for for Ireland, for the Irish government, uh, uh, arising from the Brexit uh, decision. I mean, I, I won't uh, treat your listeners to a, a lecture on, on the Northern Ireland peace process, but suffice it to say that the European Union uh, dimension, the fact that both countries were uh, at our... Uh, members of the European Union, that played a, a big role in uh, getting us to the peace agreement of 1998, the so-called Good Friday Agreement. Um, and uh, I mean, in effect, our joint EU membership over the last uh, 30, 40 years has helped to dismantle some of the um, some of the tensions which existed between um, uh, both, both parts of Ireland and indeed uh, with, with the UK. So uh, th 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 it is an important dimension. If you remove that dimension, you create uh, uncertainties um, and it is therefore in the interest of both the Irish and British governments to try to have what's called a soft border, that, that at least the, the border in Ireland would be um, handled in a practical way uh, that we would not have a return to the the um, uh, elaborate customs posts and so on, which we used to have. I think both governments recognise that it would be, in, in principle, undesirable to go back to the days of a, of a so-called hard border um, because we've had so many gains from the peace process which relate to increased uh, trade across the border, increased movement of people and, and, and services, uh, reconciliation, uh, etc. So none of us want to threaten those gains and therefore we hope that one outcome of the uh, negotiations which will have to begin with Britain uh, is that uh, uh, some kind of soft border will, will survive. Now that's just one aspect. Another aspect is that Ireland has a common travel area with the UK. This is a special arrangement which means that in effect we have free movement of people and goods and services between Ireland and the UK. Um, that's important for our trade and, and we are an important uh, trading partner for, for the UK and vice versa. Um, so none of us want to threaten that, 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 that uh, uh, bilateral trade relationship. Um, and uh, now we are in touch with the British government about the implications of, uh, of Brexit and uh, it will be a, a major challenge for all of us to, to, to get the kind of outcome that, that, that we need. Um, there's also increased north-south dialogue in Ireland um, about the implications and there will shortly be a, a 
consultative forum uh, meeting in, in Dublin on a periodic basis, which will involve political parties, business, trade unions, and so on. So overall, we're, 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 we're taking stock of what the decision will mean for, um, for Ireland, North and South, and for relations between Ireland and the UK within the European Union. Of course, the European Union itself is, has to prepare its own negotiating position vis-a-vis the UK, and, and we will be part of that. Boy, what you just described, I, I, I didn't realize that uh, Ireland would be impacted so much. Now, you, you talked about uh, the, the, the Good Friday Agreement. Uh, you were one of the people who was instrumental in brokering the peace deal between Northern Ireland and Great Britain, one of the most brutal conflicts of the 20th century. But from what you just described, that aspect of it uh, with Brexit, uh, you sound concerned. Well, I, I, I don't want to overstate it. I suppose I'm reflecting a, a general uh, um, unease um, uh, since the Brexit decision. But the reality is that uh, we have uh, absolutely peaceful conditions uh, in Northern Ireland since uh, the IRA ceasefire uh, of 1997, uh, followed then by the Good Friday Agreement um, in 1998. And we have had a return to uh, some very stable and peaceful conditions and in that sense there is no threat to that but you know a lot of cooperation has built up over the years across the border um, and uh, the border is virtually invisible um, of course it's there constitutionally but uh, it's not there any longer as a kind of day-to-day uh, reality uh, for, for people to observe so all of this has contributed to a very positive atmosphere I suppose there's a natural um, kind of unease about a situation which potentially you could have a more obvious border restored. Uh, I don't want to overstate it. I mean, the two governments are absolutely committed to the peace process and the and the political parties in Northern Ireland are as well, and all of those uh, uh, elements are absolutely stable. But, you know, um, uh, the, the fact that the UK and Ireland were both members of the European Union did lay the foundation for a very um, uh, um, close relationship in relation to Northern Ireland and we naturally want to preserve as much of that as possible. So from our point of view we would hope that Britain's exit from the EU uh, would be uh, as amicable and as uh, as pragmatic as possible. We, 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 I mean, we would like uh, ideally as much as possible of the of the current arrangements to continue, and that's also from a trade perspective because we would like to see Britain um, uh, remaining or at least um, uh, continuing to be closely associated with the uh, the single market. Uh, therefore, for a number of reasons, we would like the uh, and the, 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 the quality of the, of the departure to be as uh, uh, harmonious as possible. You also were represented, a representative uh, from Ireland to the Russian Federation when Vladimir Putin rose to power. Tell me about that time and uh, what are your thoughts on what Putin has done over the past three years, annexing Crimea, war with Ukraine, involved in Syria? What about Vladimir Putin? Well, as it happens, uh, when I was ambassador to uh, the Russian Federation, it coincided with uh, the arrival of Vladimir Putin, first as as prime minister and then uh, as president. So um, I suppose I've I've observed him from the beginning. I may not be able to reply directly to, to the interesting questions you raised, but I think um, uh, the um, 
Um, there is undoubtedly um, a, a, a tense relationship uh, arising from the actions in uh, in Ukraine and Crimea. Uh, the European Union has expressed its views very, very clearly, and uh, Ireland obviously would be part of that. Um, uh, you know, one can't deny that um, there are cons- grave concerns over uh, Russian actions in Syria at, at, at present. Um, so, um, uh, I mean, I'm not saying anything particularly new here. Um, these concerns are widely shared um, in, internationally. But again, that's where um, a place like the UN uh, comes into its own because um, it, at the UN, in the Security Council, you have the possibility to engage directly with Russia on each of these issues which affects international peace and security and although um, the, the, the the answers are not always easy uh, or, or easy to obtain um, at least you have a a format for uh, trying to thrash them out with Russia directly and uh, and indeed there are uh, gains from time to time but but it is a, a long slog I have to say have you ever met Putin in person uh, I did yes uh, how, very how, would you, how would you size him up well well at the beginning he he was um he had just arrived um in office and uh i suppose uh, i literally met him in the first few days so um I, I, there's there is a contrast between the way he was then and and, and uh you know uh, how he is now given that many years have elapsed and and uh, uh but in those days he was still finding his feet so um i, I remember it quite vividly Hmm. Uh, Ireland's ambassador to the United Nations, David Donahue, ambassador. Uh, Donahue will be speaking on the campus of Elizabethtown College on October 17th. Ambassador, thank you very much for joining us today. A pleasure, Scott. Thank you very much. Bye-bye now. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. We are in the midst of WITF. Well, I don't know if I'd say midst. We are coming down the Almost home stretch done. now of uh, WITF's fall fundraising campaign. Uh, Tim Lambert, WITF's Multimedia News Director, joins me. And uh, Tim, first of all, good morning. Good morning, Scott. Uh, not very often that we, we do a lot of international uh, topics on uh, Smart Talk. Right. I mean, we try to focus on Pennsylvania and uh, what's happening here in the region. But when we do have someone like uh, the Irish ambassador to the United Nations speaking on a local college campus or coming to our area, I'd like to talk to those people ahead of time or maybe, maybe even afterwards. But interesting conversation. Yeah, fascinating conversation, and and what a life he's led. Uh, you know, to to just have the breadth of experience that he's had, and all the the the, the different people, these important historical figures, he's had a chance to interact with uh, in his time. Uh, it's amazing, and it's great to have that as a resource here on WITF by being able to to listen in a little bit and and get a feel for you know what the international game is like, and uh, if that is the kind of conversation you expect. And sometimes, you know, mostly it'll be what the state is like or what what the community is like, um, make that contribution now in favor of WITF, $5 a month, $10 a month, or a dollar a day at 1-800-233-9483. Scott, it is the final day of our fall fundraising campaign. We have about $13,287 to go. Smart Talk with a very... Uh, achievable goal of $500 for the hour. So we hope to hear from you with that contribution now. 
uh, for you loyal Smart Talk listeners. And it's not just Smart Talk. We know that uh, you're tuning in for all the great programming on uh, WITF, whether it's the Diane Reem Show, Here and Now from NPR, or uh, Tim hosting uh, Morning Edition. You wake up in the morning, and that's how you start your day with news from around the world, across the country, here in central Pennsylvania, uh, to find out what happened overnight or what happened yesterday, what's happening right now. Uh, or if you're looking for uh, you know, State Impact Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania's energy economy, Tim, talk about our desk, because that is something unique that WITF has. I just mentioned one, State Impact. Yeah, absolutely. I think what, uh, what we try to do with our uh, editorial approach is you know, we don't have the resources to be everywhere at once like some organizations do. So we have to pick and choose and use those resources the best way we can. So we sort of look for underreported stories in Pennsylvania, one being the energy economy. Uh, State Impact Pennsylvania for more than five years has been the leader in covering the Marcellus Shale uh, drilling issue, along with uh, the impact that uh, the coal industry has seen as a result of natural gas and the drop in natural gas prices and the and how communities have adjusted to the energy economy. Uh, we've also have State in, or Keystone Crossroads with Emily Previty based here, but we team up with other reporters across the state, WPSU and State College, uh, WHYY in Philadelphia and WESA in Pittsburgh, and those four reporters cover the state's communities and cities, and they take a look at why uh, one city that might be at Act 47, the state's program for distressed municipalities, has the problems it has compared to what the challenges might be in another city under Act 47. Uh, they'll take a look at uh, de- economic development in these cities. What's working in Allentown, and why can't it work, say, in in Lancaster or Reading? So we try to take a look at these issues that are being sort of reported on on this micro level and give you a wider understanding of the trends and how cities have, that have been struggling can find their footing a little bit and, and find their way back into being an economic, economically vital community for, for everyone, for the region. Uh, and we have Ben Allen covering Transforming Health, a lot of changes in the healthcare industry, and Ben has been keeping a close eye on that. Uh, he was one of the early reporters to be on the opioid epidemic in, in uh, the state, and he stayed on that, and he's going to keep on that until we, uh, we find a way to to, uh, to slow that down a little bit. But that's the kind of reporting we try to do each and every day. We try to take a look at stories that are underreported, that stories maybe uh, that that kind of have been glossed over a little bit, and we try to delve into them and bring them to you each and every day. And we think that's a unique approach to journalism. And if that's what you want, we hope that you make that contribution at WITF.org or call 1-800-233-9483. It could be $5 a month, $10 a month. We're working our way towards that goal. Just $13,287 to reach our goal of $85,000 by 630 tonight. And as Tim said, uh, a, a very a modest goal here on Smart Talk. So let's hit that goal here in the last day of WITF's fall fundraising campaign. Uh, you Smart Talk uh, loyalists out there, we want to hear from you on this last day. Tim, talk to you in just a few minutes. You okay? got it, Scott. Thank you. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I am Scott Lamar. The city of Lancaster has been aggressively pursuing a green, environmentally friendly infrastructure. In fact, Lancaster is ahead of most cities across the state and the country. One of the latest projects is a vertical greenhouse that would be adjacent to the Prince Street garage at West Orange Street in downtown Lancaster. It is just what it sounds like, vegetables growing vertically along the garage with no soil, very little water. It would be the second of its kind in the country. Joining us on today's program is Corey Fogarty, who is president of the Lancaster Urban Urban Farm 
Farm Initiative. Mr. Fogarty, welcome to the program. Morning, Scott. Also joining us on the program is Nona Yehia, who is CEO and co-founder of Vertical Harvest in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. It was the first vertical greenhouse in the country. Ms. Yehia, welcome to the program. Good morning, Scott. Morning. And uh, I'm, I'm glad you got up early this morning because you're a couple hours behind us in Wyoming. But let's start with uh, the project in uh, Lancaster. Corey Fogarty, vertical farming involves cultivating crops in a vertical arrangement. It's, it's probably hard for many people to even picture. And by the way, we have a photograph on our website that uh, lets you know what it does look like. That's at WITF.org. Uh, what will we see? Kind of describe it for our audience. Well, the Prince Street Garage is, if I'm not mistaken, about 47 years old in the decks. When you walk out of uh, Central Market and look down the alleyway, you will you see the face of the garage. You know, it's a garage. So if you Google Vertical Harvest in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, that's our vision. It would look almost identical to Nona's project. Um, it would be a beautiful glass structure going up five stories up the building, all the way across the face of the field, building down Orange Street. Glass. That glass would be the first and, thing glass you kind and of aluminum notice or steel, it. depending on the, uh, you know, Nona is also an architect, so she can better answer some of the, some mm-hmm. of the structures. And, we, and we will talk about that in just a moment. But what are some of the benefits of doing this? Well, um, it's an unused space. And so off of Prince Street, there's about, I believe it's a 25 or 30 foot setback that goes towards the road. And it's just empty area. We, as a nonprofit last year, uh, visited with Mayor Gray. Uh, in his offices, and and we were talking about building a a, a rooftop urban greenhouse on which on, Lancaster has uh, several rooftop gardens. Right? We do. We have right. several rooftop gardens in the city. Um, we were talking about building a larger scale uh, hydroponic, a lot, you know, two thirds of an acre to an acre, and it, actually this was Rick Gray's idea. It came from some other individuals. Actually, one of them happens to be on our board now many years back. But Rick looked at our group and said, hey, can you build this? And he, and he pulled up a picture of Prince Street, and he pulled a picture of Vertical Harvest, and he said, this idea was brought to me several years back. If you guys are <clears throat> collaborating and creating this, you know, this, this, this movement, he said, do you think you can do this? And we all looked at each other and said yes. And so a year later, we're here. And we're working with Nona, and you know we're really, really moving forward. I, I, you know, just from a personal point of view, looking at this, this sounds like such a great idea of you know a way to use unused space. Now, uh, you know, something that you didn't mention though that it is unused space, but when many of us think about crops being grown, because that's you're planning on growing vegetables here, quite a bit. Um, okay, when you say quite a bit, how? What are you talking about? How much? I don't actually have volumes yet. Nona, you might actually be able to speak a little better towards this subject, and we're looking at about I think sixty thousand square feet of growing area. Is uh, my, my calculation. All right, so clear. Nona, how much uh, have you? Uh, by the way, what stage are you? Because you're not completely finished yet in in uh, Jackson Hole, right? Oh, we are finished now. Yeah, oh, you we've are. been in operation for about five months now. Okay. Have any crops been produced? Yes, many crops have been produced, and so you know we're what's uh, what was surprising to me is we're very similar to the site in Lancaster. So uh, we're about thirty feet wide by 150 feet long, but Jackson only allows you to go four stories up. So on a tenth of an acre, we're growing about five acres of what traditional farmland might be able to produce. And so we're targeting about 100,000 pounds of produce, but we're only a 13,500 square foot greenhouse. But we use 
use a lot of vertical technology to extend that square footage. So what Corey's talking about, uh, we have the potential to even do more than that. No, no, you sound like you're in a plane. I uh, I am in a car, which in Wyoming, it could be like a place. Oh, okay. All right. What kind of crops are you growing in Jackson Hole? Well, I think that's where vertical harvest is really unique as well. Most vertical greenhouses to date are monocrops, so they only can grow lettuces. We grow a variety of lettuces and microgreens, but really where we differ, differentiate ourselves is that we grow tomatoes. Hmm. So have any of those crops been harvested yet? Yes, all of them. Uh, we are we have been grow we have been selling we just finished our first summer season. We've been selling to all our local restaurants as well as a few key grocery stores and directly to the public. We have an on-site marketplace on site that the community can come and buy fresh tomatoes. We're just going into winter here in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. Uh, it's snow is already on the ground, and we have fresh tomatoes for sale. You have snow on the ground already? Yes. Oh, man. You, I, I have never been to Jackson Hole, but I do hear it, it's beautiful. But, uh, Corey, you know, something that uh, Nona brings up, and this is what is so unique, but there are so many aspects of this that is unique, but this is a 12-month growing season. Mm -hmm. This is not just something that happens uh, traditionally here in central Pennsylvania in the warm weather months. Uh, talk about that. How is that possible? The glass probably has a lot to do with it. Sure. Um well, I mean, greenhouses are greenhouses. Right. You can heat right. them. You know, we're looking at using passive solar technologies. You know, one of our our real goals here with our project is to be, um, you know, zero energy, uh, recycling our water, you know, garnering a 12-month growing season. You know, the, the snow on the ground in Lancaster, you know, it, it stops the growing seasons. And so what we'd like to do is provide a 12-month cycle you know, um, whereby we can actually start establishing more fixed price points for our produce. You know, that way, you know, people can budget out. We, we, we're looking at working with um, lower income families to donate some of our produce. We're looking at working with local restaurants. I happen to own some. Um, and, and so, you know, we're looking at purchasing from our, my, my for-profit will purchase from our nonprofit, giving it a, uh, it's just a, it's, it's a very, healthy model to have a 12-month growing cycle where you can actually manage your costs. And so we, we're approaching this from a very business-minded perspective. Now, Nona mentioned uh, tomatoes and lettuce. Uh, any plans? Are we far enough along with this in Lancaster that uh, you have any idea what uh, will be planted? Uh, a loose idea. We have a consultant, Wendy Blanchard, with Arthur and Friends, who is Friends with Nona. We've all become friends via phone. And, yeah, you, know, you when, sound very familiar with one another, yeah, we, we even know though she's in not Wyoming where there's snow on the ground already. Well, I, I hope to take a trip out there to see the greenhouse <laughs> and bring my skis. So, <laughs> um, the, uh, anyway, you know, Wendy, Wendy's, uh, she does this internationally. She, she, she works with all kinds of different programs in greenhouse construction, and Wendy is currently helping work our product mix out in our feasibility study. We did get some grant money from uh, Lancaster County Community Fund. We were sponsored by Lancaster Conservancy. Uh, Fritz Schroeder is on our board mm -hmm. for the Conservancy as well. Uh, anyway, they gave us money to pay Wendy to do a, a larger scale feasibility study. Nona is helping with the idea that 
we're going to work together to build a quote vertical harvest Lancaster. So you know we're mm-hmm. we're really mature. This is this is happening. Hopefully, how much money will it cost? Well, um, probably about five million. That's a lot of money. But uh, you know we are a nonprofit, and we're going to do. We have fundraising. Found, we're talking to foundations, larger scale banks. I mean, we'll actually be. I'll be making a small pitch at the end of this conversation to go to our website and start donating because we'd like to build this thing. Uh, Nona, what about you? You mentioned that uh, Jackson Hole's project is smaller than Lancaster's. What what, what did it cost? Well, you know, it cost all in with everything about $3.5 million. Now, um, we, Jackson Hole, is not only unique in that it has snow in the ground in October, <laughs> but, it, but it is, uh, you know... The, the worst seismic zone that you can have. So we, and, and being the first, that's, you know, the first of its kind, we we had a lot of obstacles to and hurdles to overcome. So, you know, Lancaster will benefit from all of that knowledge. So I think that, you know, that, that $5 million is a great budget for it, and that uh, that is where, you know, th- these things are going to get better and better and more and more economical the more we do it. Now, Corey, you said that... Uh, th- what your goal is that you would use no energy. Talk about how this works. I mean, hydroponic, I guess it's an explanation of, of uh, you know, hydroponic uh, agriculture. That's one thing. But there are lights involved that, you know, cost money, the electricity, that sure. kind of thing. I actually have seen, you know, just researching this, there may be some t- CO2 emitted. What about that? Well, I mean, Nona being involved in this conversation would probably be, you know, having her be live with me. I, You know, it's going to take time and study and, you know, proper planning. The goal is zero energy. You know, whether that's achievable is still yet to be said. Um, there are a lot of, in the past 10 years, uh, there have been a lot of um, technology increases in the green energy uh, um, field. So, you know, there's a lot more capture of sunlight and solar and you know uh, so you know again that's our goal we'd like to use solar we you know possibly wind if if it if it makes any sense whatsoever uh, geothermal is another opportunity so you know our goal is to be as zero as low impact on the environment and give back when you say co2 emissions um I'd like explain that a little bit. Well, I, I, okay, methane is one of the things that, uh, uh, you know, I have seen. Not big, but uh, in, in an explanation, some background of it, that uh, there would be, could be some... You know, methane throw-off of a, from a greenhouse. I I know. This is what I was, I was reading about. No, it. no, do you know about this? I have no, never heard of that. No, I don't. Okay. Uh, you know, we, we use CO2 to grow. So that is not a bad thing. Um, but, of course, it's an acceptable level. I haven't heard anything about that. Okay. Yeah, well, I'll sure. see what I can find here before the end of the program. But, Nona, what about that as far as uh, the energy consumption uh, used? What do your electric bills look like? I mean, I'm sure you're using well, solar, so uh, that, that probably cuts down on a whole lot. It does. And, you know, one of the big criticisms of vertical farming in general as a movement has been the energy usage. But I'll tell you that people are looking at our greenhouse as a model. We had the goal of, you know, um, not using energy, having a a net zero uh, policy. And and we didn't get there, but I know that it can be done. Um, What we are able to do is really balance the natural sunlight that we're getting through our growing uh, systems, which which run vertically along the southern facade. So that that 
slight innovation there um, really keeps our energy bills down. So we're really happy with what we're seeing in terms of our utility costs. You know, I'm I'm curious. You, you mentioned that, uh, and I'm probably asking a basic question about uh, solar energy. But uh, Corey, is are you pointing south with this? What? Yeah, yeah it's a south facing. This, it's the perfect, fa- if I'm not mistaken, no, this is the perfect facing for a greenhouse in this mm-hmm. neighborhood. Yeah, I, I'm picturing the garage. My wife parks there every day. She works in downtown. Oh, cool. So uh, I'm picturing the garage, and, you know, I know exactly where, where what you're talking about uh, with the, that, that unused space. You know, this would seem to be a great idea for so many places. Now, granted, that $5 million you're talking about, uh, known as $3.5 million, that's a lot of money up front. But... You know, if this can save energy, if it can grow crops, if it can help people of low income, you can sell these crops. Mm-hmm. There would, this would seem to be, and you, you would be the first two doing this in the country. This would seem to be, if it's successful, something that a lot of other places around the world, not just in the, across the country, but around the world, could use. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. The, the goal is to Nona and I connected, and I, I think about six months ago or so, by phone through Wendy. We, we we have the same we're on this on this on a river going the same direction we we you know this is a replicatable model if it's you know and and, and I think that's a vertical harvest mission our mission is to build a vertical greenhouse and you know we haven't uh, codified everything yet but you know hopefully partner with vertical harvest and and help them advance their mission as well mm. and I can see some of those places that uh, you know sub-sahara Africa mm-hmm. uh, places that uh, you know, have a hard time where the soil is not the best, not exactly uh, prime agriculture soil or prime agriculture territories, if they could come up with the upfront money, that this would seem to be something to be very helpful. Yeah, I would agree. I, I, I think it, uh, I think it, well, Nona, maybe Nona can speak to that a little bit. Well, I'll tell you, since uh, we've completed our greenhouse and well before that, while we were working on it, uh, we get calls every day, um, and we have gotten emails from Africa. Uh, I think there's a lot of interest in this movement, and and as Corey said, we're you know we're running down the same path, and I would say running <laughs> uh, in order to you know take advantage of this momentum and interest, and you know it solves a lot of problems. We're talking about the growing. Uh, aspect of this, but one of the things that Vertical Harvest of Jackson Hole does really well, too, is it has a real community impact as we hire people with developmental disabilities within our community. Um, So that's also a replicable model, is helping underserved populations within the community. And so this is a real community-based project. Um, And I think that's where the interest comes from. A lot of other vertical farms are just producing food, and don't get me wrong, that is much needed in our uh, world today, but I think that's where the real interest comes from, is this is about strengthening communities. Absolutely. Uh, Corey, uh, this project is contingent on the approval of a feasibility study. I mean, that's the point where you are right now mm-hmm. uh, by the Lancaster Parking Authority because they own the property. Correct. Uh, if this study is approved, is this a go? Uh, the only hurdle would be funding, but you know, funding is achievable. So yes. Okay, Nona, let me ask you. This sounds like it has potential. It's been successful for you. It sounds like it has potential to be a great thing. What would it take for it to become a routine part of urban planning? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
a lot, a lot of visionaries and a lot of persistence. I think that, I think you can really see the benefits. Of course, each project would be different and tailored to each community, but it takes leadership. And I think that's what Corey and his group bring to the table. And that's what's really exciting about the project in Lancaster. It takes someone who's committed to it and is going to uh, navigate what can be somewhat, you know, uh, unpredictable waters, I'll call them, of government and communities, really. Hmm. Well, I enjoyed the conversation, and I'm sure our audience did, too. Uh, Corey Fogarty, who is the president of the Lancaster Urban Farming Initiative, before you go, you said you wanted to mention uh, if those who want to support this. Yes, uh, uh, www.lancasterufi, that's UFI as an urban farming initiative, dot org. We have a donate button, any Small donations will help us bring this program to the table. We do have some other community programs that we are uh, working on that are uh, should support uh, food safety in Lancaster. And just as a note, Scott, my wife and I have been texting while we were talking, and we are going to donate $50 to... Uh, NPR today. There you go. In to support WITF. of your fundraising well, drive. We, we love your program. We thank you very much, Corey. Thank you very much. Right. Uh, Nona Yia, who is the CEO and co-founder of Vertical Harvest in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. Thank you for being with us today, too. Well, thank you. This was a pleasure. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. <laughs> you may have heard uh, Tim Lambert's voice, WITS Morning Meeting News Director here, as I uh, just to turn the microphone up. He was g- giving Corey Fogarty instructions on how <laughs> to go get that $50 contribution. That's right. He's going to go back to the volunteer room. They'll take care of it. <laughs> but, you know, it's, it's, it's good to see that, uh, you know, Corey was just saying that he's a regular listener to Smart Talk and that uh, his wife texted him as he just heard in the air and said $50 for uh, WITF. And, yeah. It's on his bucket list to be a guest, so that's kind of cool. Oh, so we great, appreciate great. hearing that. But uh, Tim, a great that's conversation, just one. You know, just uh, a great conversation. Both conversations today, yeah. and that's what we try to do every day. That's right, and bringing uh, conversations that uh, you might necess- not might be on your radar. You know, maybe you're scanning social media in the morning and you're thinking of all these different stories that are happening. And then you listen to Smart Talk and you're thinking, "Wow, this wasn't anywhere. This is great. This is a brand new conversation that I hadn't thought of, I hadn't heard about, but." It's connecting the threads of community. It's bringing communities together and finding ways to improve the community, finding ways to keep you educated about what's happening uh, with the issues around you. And if that's what you expect, that's the kind of conversation, the civil discourse you want each and every day. Show your support now at 1-800-233-9483. We haven't reached our goal of $500 yet, so we'd love to hear from you with that $5 a month contribution. Corey's is probably going to show up very shortly. Uh, $10 a month or a dollar a day or maybe $100 a month to become a Premier Circle member. Let's hear from you now with just about two and a half minutes left. This is your last chance to support Smart Talk financially for this fall fundraising campaign. Make that contribution now. Maybe there's someone out there who can just take care of the whole $500. Maybe. We yeah. would hope. Yeah. We would hope. We've, now, we're at 135 right now, which isn't bad. But yeah. we, you know, so yeah. hopefully they're a little slow in, in getting the updates. But they're pretty quick on the last day. So. It is the last day of uh, WITS fall fundraising campaign. Uh, Tim, uh, uh, one thing I did want to mention, coming up on Smart Talk, and we are doing so much of it here on WITF in news and NPR around the country. But uh, starting next week, I'm going to be talking with uh, many of 
the candidates uh, here in, uh, in in central Pennsylvania. Ask those questions that people, attorney general candidates, we have both candidates for attorney general uh, on the program next week. So, and then not together, but, uh, <laughs> you know, congressional candidates. So we have, that's something else we do here on Smart Talk. Uh, so, Tim, just one last time with uh, why people should con- should contribute and that contact information. Yeah, you want to support an independently operated, a locally owned media organization that brings you news and information that helps give you a better understanding of the world around you at 1-800-233-9483 or WITF.org. Our last day, so uh, be sure that if you waited to the last minute, we'd like to hear from you. Coming up on uh, Monday's program, we dive right into election coverage. It will be the day after the next presidential debate between uh, Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton. Franklin and Marshall political analyst Dr. G. Terry Madonna is with us not only about the debate, but there's been some disparity in the polls about the U.S. Senate race here in Pennsylvania. That's amongst the topics we'll talk about on Monday.